Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So I'm here with uh, Hardy Wallace of Dirty and Rowdy, and over the last 10 years they've really established a reputation for themselves for making more Vedra, as well as other grape varieties as well. But it's more Vedra that we want to focus on today. It's one of my favourite grapes from all the way back in the 90s when I started drinking wine in Provence. I fell in love with that grape and the wines that can be made from it. Uh, But it's not one that's been especially popular here in California. And also across France and Spain and um, Australia as well, it's often used for blending rather than being on its own. What we're going to talk about today is what it works, how it works on its own and why it can be really, really good and why more people should work with it, really. So just a quick background on Mourvedre. It's a Spanish grape um, called Monastrel in Spain. Mourvedre is its French uh, name, and that's because of the town in Spain called Murviedo, which is where the Mourvedre name comes from and near where uh, Monastrel originates. And it's also called Mataro as well, which is another town in Spain that the uh, French called it. And when it came to California and to Australia in the 19th century, Mataro was the name that uh, it was called at that time. But now generally internationally, it's called Mourvedre. So it's a late budding, late ripening grape, and it does need warm conditions. And so I'm going to talk to Hardy about Morvedra and why he thinks it really works in California and um, some of the other reasons he works with it. So what attracted you to Morvedra in the first place? I think, um, to be completely frank, what attracted attracted us to Morvedra at first was it was available. Um, When we started making wine in 2010, Morvedra was not what we were planning on making. But 2010 was one of the years that had incredible, incredible cool streak all summer. It was really one of the cooler vintages we've had in the last 20 years. But then we had two massive heat spikes, one uh, right around Labor Day and then one a few weeks later. And with that, a lot of the crop in Northern California was sunburnt. So if you were interested in making Pinot, Chard, SB that hadn't been picked. So... Our initial thought was we were going to make skin-fermented muscat, which is about <laughs> as different from Mervedra as you can get. I'm glad you didn't go wrong. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that got lost in the first heat spike. And then we were going to make Ovine Petite Syrah. Then we were going to make White Zinfandel, but more along the lines of what Turley does, basically a super high acid ripping uh, Zinfandel Rosé, but calling it White Zin mm-hmm. to try to take back uh, take back the <laughs> streets there it, yeah. on that. Exactly. <laughs> so um, we had strikeout after strikeout because then the first heat spike got rid of the muscat. Then the second heat spike, um, we had issues with the Zinfandel. Then we had rain and we had botrytis because Petit Syrah has such tight clusters. So it looked like we were going to be completely shut out. And at the time, I was working for another winemaker, a gentleman named Kevin Kelly, who used to be the winemaker for Lyoko, but then had two projects, the Natural Process Alliance and Selenia. And I was working with him. And so making wine with something in 10 was just going to be a side project just to get things rolling. But our assistant winemaker and my roommate at the time was a woman named Angela Osborne, who Angela makes the attribute to Grace Grenache wines. Mm -hmm. And Angela had said, hey, you know, Right next to my block of Grenache at Santa Barbara Highlands Vineyard are just these couple rows of Merved that no one's really wanted. Um, they're definitely a little bit tired. They you know, struggle to ripen. And she's like, I bet they're available. So made a couple phone calls. And heck, this Mervedra was available that no one wanted. But that was right next to what I thought was one of the most beautiful Grenaches coming out of California. So I agreed to take it. And 
as much as I love Morvedra and what we think of it in its more typical state, uh, especially like the wines coming out of Provence or Bandal, when you're starting to make a brand new winery or you know a new wine project, and you're making wines that you're like, hey, try that in 20 years. Let me know how that's, <laughs> how that's like. It doesn't really make sense. Um, but at the same point, most of those wines, the, most of the wines I was drinking at the time were lighter, fresher, brighter. I was drinking more Beaujolais, more wines of Majura, more Chenin, more Northern Rhone uh, wines. And I thought, what if I took a gentler hand with Morvet? What if I treated it if really what I if I could have made anything red at the time I would have made Gamay? Mm-hmm. And what if I kind of approached it in that same way? And I was told that was a silly idea, it couldn't be done, blah, blah, blah. And every time someone would ask me that, it was like, well, have you tried it? People were like, no, of course I haven't tried it because it's a stupid idea. I'm like, well, I'm kind of a stupid guy. <laughs> so um, we ended up picking um, Morved, which I always like to say was like right on time. It had beautiful fruit, was beautifully ripe, plenty of acid, only about barely 13% potential alcohol. So at the time, that was completely crazy. I mean, because a lot of times people thought Morved was either these huge wines that were coming out of the south of France, Australia, um, wines coming out of Spain that just were just big, powerful, both not only in the volume of wine as far as the the power of them, but like in the alcohol as well. So the idea of having something, you know, 13% or under from Morved uh, or Morvedra was very bizarre. And so when did you pick the uh, Morvedra? So we picked, um, because it was a late season, we picked that actually on Halloween. So picked uh, the night of Halloween, and we brought the fruit back to the winery on uh, November 1st, mm-hmm. which consequently was is one of the latest picks we've ever had. Hmm. So, I mean, it's often that we'll pick into early-ish October, sometimes second week of October, but it's rare that we see November. And we did see November... Well, actually, we didn't see November in 2018. We got October 28th was our last pick. So, yeah, 10 was the latest by far. Not by far, by... Mm-hmm. By, weeks, by, yeah. by, by four days, <laughs> by far. Um, so, yeah, so normally... But it, it really depends on the site and the vintage. Um, you know, you know, we've got certain sites like Evangelo and Contra Costa is our earliest ripening site, even though that's usually our most powerful wine. And that is usually the first to second week of August. Um, but part of that is due to the, the way the uh, pruning, the vines come alive a little bit earlier. There's no real frost uh, risk there. So things get pruned back much earlier and getting ready. You know, the vines come back to life much earlier. But yeah, well, usually from mid-August to mid-October, it's kind of game on for us with Mervetra. It's quite a range. It is. But our sites are quite a range, mm-hmm. too. So we actually have nine vineyards of Mervedra that we work with. Mm-hmm. And... Those now, um, we no longer work with that site in Santa Barbara. We had another one that was planted for us that was coming online this year, unfortunately, down in Santa Barbara, but um, that got mixed up in the Graciano debacle. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, yeah, sold as Morvedra, but when, it, um, when all those uh, fake Morvedra vines that were going around turned out to be Graciano, this was uh, one of those vineyards. So we have well, to. It's an interesting story. But, um, that, yeah, another story. Another story. Because <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. so, Graciano is a fun grape to yeah, talk absolutely. about as well. So we work really from Santa Barbara County up to northern Mendocino through the Sierra foothills, uh, Contra Costa, San Benito, um, and a few other little nooks and crannies. Mm-hmm. But it's about a, you know, driving, it's about 
five hours, six hours north to south uh, range and about three hours east to west. Mm -hmm. So we'd cover most of central and northern California with mm -hmm. Mavedra, but I've worked as far down as Santa Barbara yeah. for a uh, number of years. So 2010 is the first vintage and it's an accidental relationship. <laughs> exactly. So what made you stick with Mavedra? Yeah, the, the thing that really got me was not only was the wine delicious, but when we really think about as winemakers, um, you know, what we're looking for are those clear just expressions of place and those really deep connections which to me it's, it's it's far more about actually having a person that's drinking the wine make that connection to the place versus how limestone it tastes or how granitic it tastes but it's really that those unique flavors or what takes someone to that spot that can only taste like that spot mm -hmm. it's like when you walk into like you know you know Yosemite Valley and there's like Half Dome and there's you know El Capitan or whatever like oh my god this, this could only be this spot mm -hmm. And we really found that with that particular Mervedra. And we were really lucky because we were working in the same cellar and we were roommates and our uh, co-workers. Um, Angela and I had, she had her Grenache in one part of the cellar at my Mervedra. And we could taste back and forth. And even though the varieties, you know, you know people often lump, you know, Merved, Syrah, Grenache together because they're their own varieties. But to me, they're really different wines. And to taste the basically the Santa Barbara Highlands-ness of her Grenache, and also to taste that in Armour Ved, even though they were, you know, carried by two totally different musical instruments or vehicles, it was mind-blowing because we never, you know, rarely when you talk about Mervedra with people, do you get into a conversation of soil, do you get into a conversation of tuar? You always go into a conversation about grape variety and what are its varietal characteristics? How big is it? How meaty is it? How wild is it? How, you know, feral is it? Like it's all these things that are about like the unruliness of this grape that must be tamed. And you're like, <laughs> fuck no. Like it's actually like, to me, it's like one of, especially in California and a lot of our terroir, over the last 10 years, we've been able to figure out that like, oh my gosh, this is one of the most beautiful transmitters of terroir that we have. It suits so much of our climate. So it was really in that first vintage that we're like, oh, like, unfortunately, because uh, Angela had her Grenache right there, it's like, oh my gosh, like, these are actually, like, this is a Tawar grape here in California. So knowing that there were definitely lots of cool pockets, and I mean cool as an interesting, not necessarily cool climate, mm -hmm. pockets in California that had more fed we started seeking out like, huh, okay, if this is what it does at 3,200 feet elevation in far eastern Santa Barbara on clay and gravel, what would it do on volcanic soils up in Amador County? What would it do on alluvial soils and 100-year-old vines in Redwood Valley? What would it do on limestone and granite? What would it do on um, sand? What would it do on any of these different soil variations? So. It was really that first vintage that started the whole, like the journey and the mission. And we were lucky too, because at the time, no one wanted Merved. Um, people would look at it and just solely want it for blending. If they wanted it, they only wanted a tiny bit because no one buys Mervedra and like, you know, no one was making with the exception of probably Klein and maybe Cass at the time. Like no one was making like, couple hundred cases of Mervedra, even I think Tablas Creek, though they grow a lot, a lot goes into the blends, maybe it was only doing 200 to 400 cases of Mervedra mm -hmm. for a decent sized winery. 
So we really, anytime we'd call people up to ask about Morvedra, people would like greet us like, with, oh yeah, we've got to like, come on up. Check it. No one wants this stuff. So we really, I, I mean, I think we got very lucky in 10, but then we had a lot of just um, intuition and a lot of belief that, wow, this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So last time we talked, I asked you about Morvedra, and you said how perfectly suited it was to mm. California's climate. And of course, it has been planted here since the 19th century. And we have a Mediterranean climate here, just as the south of France and east of Spain. Um, so, you know, how does it express that terroir that you're talking about in California? How does it express California itself? Yeah, and I think that's a huge thing when we think of not only has have uh, has Morved been here since... You know, 1860, 1870. Um, so it's been here a long, long time. And we have some vines that are, you know, about 130 years old that we work with. Um, but even on newer plantings and things, I think when we start thinking about grape varieties that first take Mervedra as a variety on its own before we get to California. And when we think of the range of suitability and the range of like deliciousness that that wine has, it is capable of being the base of the greatest rosé wines in the world, and it's capable of being the base of some of the longest-lived, most incredible wines in the world uh, from the south of France. And so you've very rare that you can find two things that can make just like, you know, King Kong, and that can make like just like, you know, the most lovely, fresh, like, you know, intriguing, like, rosés in the world. So we it's got this beautiful spectrum, and we haven't found yet in, like, our experimentations or works with work with Mervedra, like that there's a weird blind spot in between. You know, there's times that it shows more of that kind of citrusy rose stuff, like that almost blood orange, uh, orange oil type things. And there's times that it shows that deep, dark, just like savory characteristic. So thinking that it's got an incredible range of just delicious flavors, and then thinking that, okay, it is a late ripener, um, it, it buds out late, so thinking of, you know, where does it belong if it buds out late? Well, spots that might be you know, too challenging to put other things because, you know, things that bud out earlier have higher risk, you know, at, say at elevation have higher risk of frost damage. So maybe we can get, you know, maybe we start seeking it out on spots that have really cool soils in the mountains or spots above 1,800 feet that where other varieties might be too frost prone. So we started looking there. We started looking... Um, and thinking that, okay, if we got longer hang time due to the thicker skins, um, that may also, you know, just by its nature of having something sit on the vine a little bit longer, we're going to get a lot more interesting and deep and intriguing flavors. So we've got that, budding out early, ripening late, also thicker skins doing really well in hot, arid climates. So we could either work with vines that were whether they were dry farmed or whether uh, vines that were irrigated very rarely. Um, so it really was that kind of just real search for, you know, what are these interesting pockets? Like, you know, there are certain places we don't have Mervedra fry mm -hmm. for a good reason. Like we don't have it in Freestone. <laughs> we don't have it in uh, Occidental. We don't have it, though the, the new planting we were looking at would have been the most extreme. It was. Um, technically Santa Barbara County, but right across from the street from the Santa Rita Hills line. And that was going to be wacky. Um, but um, I'm still looking forward to like working with it. But wow. Um, so yeah, I think going back to the question, um, there were so many things with the way that Mervedra grows, how it ripens, and then also again, it's 
that range of acceptable flavors where it's almost like if it doesn't get ripe enough, we're going to make killer rosé. If right. it, you know, <laughs> and, and being also, it's a, it's one of these great varieties that's of moderate acidity. Like, Mervedra is not like ripping, you know, ripping acid. doesn't have the, you know, the acidity of Zinfandel or Carignan. But with that, we knew we could, as long as we can get the fruit ripe, we can actually work with it in a way and get it to a level of, you know, say the palate that we want, which would be something kind of brighter, fresher, you know, twelve percent alcohol to fourteen percent alcohol that still has like freshness and depth to it. Um, it still is fully ripe. So, yeah, it was really kind of a search and a mission to find these interesting little corners that really truly express themselves in very different ways. So, thinking about Morvedra in general, it's often used for blending as part of a GSM, and even when it's the dominant grape. It's still often as a blend in Bandol. You're thinking of Tablas Greek, which you mentioned. Their best wines are Morvedra based, but mm-hmm. they are blends. So why do you think so many people blend Morvedra rather than making a single varietal wine like you do? Yeah, well, if we go back to Bandol, it's, it's by law. So the AOC requires them to have um, that blending must be part of their tradition and that no cuvee can be above 95% Morvedra. Um, Part of that is, I think, preserving tradition where um, they want to keep everything else there. But at the same point, um, when you look at the top cuvées of every producer, you know, like Cabasau is 95% uh, 95% Mervedra from Tompier. Um, what are the other ones? I forget, like Bastide Blanche's top cuvée is like 95%. Everyone um, in a St. Ferriol from... Uh, Tour de Bonne, like 95% Morvedra. And I think that is too, um, both that they are like beautiful, powerful expressions, but they all, they're also um, made in that style because Morvedra can get to be quite um, boxy and powerful. Um, those wines can be more challenging and take a longer time to come around when they're made in that way. So I think blending was both... Um, if we're thinking about the south of France, blending was a way to um, you know, use all the components to make something that was delicious, not necessarily upfront, but something that would age gracefully, something that had meat and bones, but could still be consumed on the younger side, mm-hmm. um, was a little more approachable. And that's a backup as well, because with a late, like, late ripening grape, you need, it might not Abs- get them it, it might, yes, it may not get there. <laughs> that's why rosé was really popular too. Right. No, um, but it, it, it may not get there. And at the same point, it may be able to provide things where like, you know, Grenache ripens so fast and to balance out everything else that's there, um, here's something that you can kind of push out, get as ripe as you can and kind of blend in um, to kind of start building your cuvées. So I think it's tradition, at least looking at um, the south of France, where even though Morvedra is you know, Spanish by, by its origins, mm-hmm. you know, we always think of it, you know, at least in the U.S., primarily as a French, right. you know, including its name. So I think a lot of that comes over to producers here. Um, and like, okay, so it's, it's that M of the GSM. And, you know... The M is last for a reason because it really doesn't matter. So, or um, it's the backbone of this um, to build structure where everything else builds aromatics and you know aromatics and mid palate. So I think that was more of if that's what they do there, that's what we do mm-hmm. here, and it doesn't mean that isn't a good option. 
but it doesn't mean it's the only option. Right. Yeah, because of course California has learned so much from France. That's been the big influence in the development of California wine. So why do you think, kind of broadening out from Mourvedre, that California focus on Burgundy and Bordeaux varieties rather than Rhone varieties, which are so well suited to California? I think because if we looked historically, and if you were starting something, starting a, a vineyard project, starting a winery, and your job was to make a name for a region or a place, um, it wasn't necessarily by saying, hey, we can, we're, we're going to do this um, you know, crazy thing on our own here, we're going to focus on this because this makes sense. It's, well, the highest priced wines in the world, the most prestigious wines in the world, the most famous wines in the world are made of these grape varieties. And if we are a new growing region, we're going to show that we can do this as well, if not better, than those folks. <laughs> you know, waving their finger, the new folks over there, it doesn't matter if it's 104 degrees and we've got Pinot Noir and we just ripped out Olvine Zinfandel to plant it. It's just like Latash, you're better. Um, so I, I do think some of it is that. I think some of it was trying to make a place on the world stage for California wines and a spot that the rest of the world could relate to. So Cabernet-based things here, Merlot-based things here, Chardonnay here, Pinot Noir here. So I think that is some of it. But when we really think of it, that tradition still is barely 50 years old, maybe you know, 50, 60 years old. I mean, in Cab wasn't the dominant grape variety in Napa Valley until, what, mid-80s or so? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of it has been marketing, ease of selling things. People know in the U.S., people know grape varieties more than regions, with the exception of, say, Napa. And, mm-hmm. you know, people just say Napa, Napa. And as folks that live or work here, we know that Napa is quite diverse itself. Mm-hmm. There, there isn't just Napa. <laughs> um, so... I think some of it was popularity and competition, but I think the other part too was um, not having enough time to experiment. Because even going back to when, you know, Mervedra, you know, really came over into the states. I mean, that's only a hundred and what, hundred and fifty years or so. And in grape growing, that's I mean. Some of those vines are still alive, yeah. basically. <laughs> so like, we, we still don't have hundreds and hundreds of years to say, what does well here? What does best? What makes the most sense? Like Maybe Vermentino is the white wine of the future for California. Like maybe, And we, we won't know that for another hundred years. And maybe Mervedra is it for, uh, for red. So I think that's a huge part of it. Um, and it's also hard to pronounce. <laughs> um, so that... Um, <laughs> Even I go back and forth between Merved, Mervedra, Merved. <laughs> so I think a lot of different reasons. But I think um, for us, especially as a new winery, doing what had been done is not a recipe for success. Um, when you think that you're like, hey, we're two guys with 2000 bucks in our pocket and we're going to try to start a wine label. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going out there to be like, like we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to go buy some like one-tenth of a ton of Tokalon fruit and like make six bottles of wine and it's going to be the next like great cat. Like that is not going to happen. But what we can... And even if it did, the what is remarkable of that, about that is not that much. It's things like that have already been done. But when you can do something that you're like, huh, I think this is going to work. I think... Again, as two basically guys with no budget, like we might be able to do something and do some make something that makes a difference 
or that was actually kind of cool and interesting and has never been done before. Like, that's why, like, I don't know. That's why we did it. Yeah. And of course, it's been a, a movement supporting the Roan uh, variety since the 80s with the Roan Rangers. Without a doubt. And it's just never quite caught on. Hopefully, that's changing as well, more people work with Syrah, Grenache, Mourvedre, Carignan. Well, even with the Roan Rangers movement, when you think of how few Mourvedres were bottled mm-hmm. under the, really the, kind of the upswing of the Roan Rangers movement, um, Steve Edmonds was the first uh, California winemaker to bottle Mourvedre on its own and label it as Mourvedre, and that was 1985, I think. And then there was only, you know, a smattering here and there where the GSM or the Rhone blend had become far more popular. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, was looking back to Côte de Rhone wines or Chateau Neuf and uh, other wines from the south of France. Yeah. And how would you characterize California Mourvedre in comparison to French and also Spanish Monastrol? Yeah, I think it's tough because I think I could do it more from my point of view um, because... I feel like we're still fairly unique, so I think our style, a lot of people have started taking styles, or, or our style and you know working with it, making things that were fairly similar, kind of a lighter, fresher style. But there's still a lot of California Mourvedre that's made in that kind of big, powerful, um, more akin to Bandol style wines. And what I've found, whether it is in our style or whether it's... Um, the kind of the bigger, more uh, intense style, is that the one thing that we f- I feel like we have almost across the board uh, less of than um, Bandol and uh, Provence, but specifically Bandol is the wines tend to be a lot less reductive. Um, Mourvedre itself is a highly reductive grape, and it's very hard to um, to kind of keep that in check. But I feel like um, there's a lot less reduction in California Mourvedre. And can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's really the, the H2SE uh, aroma, uh, aromatic. So that kind of burnt hair, sulfuric um, thing that sometimes people were like, whoa, like that's, that's, a, that's a rustic wine right there. <laughs> um, but I feel like uh, California, you don't see that as much in California Mourvedre. I think part of it is where we have it grown. Um, but I think a lot of it, too, is choice of fermentation vessels, um, uh, amount of time aging. Um, we're going back to Bandol. They have a lot of rules where um, wines have to be in wood for 18 months minimum. Most people go 22, 24 plus. Um, and with that, working in a slightly reductive style um, and putting things in foudres versus barriques helps keep those wines more stable, brighter, fresher. Um, when those wines are first bottled, that reduction may be there for a little bit. Um, but often knowing that like most people probably buying those in the old world or, you know, yes, yeah, some might get popped early, but a lot of them are probably mm-hmm. going in the cellar. And whereas in our side here, things are going into barrique for the most part for a shorter period of time. And um, also knowing that the wines will more than likely be consumed um, much, much younger. So I think a lot of it is style in winemaking. It, when we look at reduction versus, oh, well, everything's just reductive there. Um, but I think that's part of the style and some of the rules that we have none here. But I think on the other side, too, and it, it's really been interesting to notice the change. I really think probably since the 2007 vintage or so um, in uh, the south of France, 
what you're seeing more in the wines, and it could be climate, um, picking decisions or other things, you're starting to see this like beautiful intensity of this like kind of super ripe raspberry that kind of goes through the um, the vein of the wines, and I feel like that is the like that that to me is like a telltale sign of like California Mourvedre. Like it's just you stick your nose in and like that ras like we were blind tasting some stuff the other night and it was just there was a Mourvedre that came to me and I'm like. California Mervedra. There's like no question about what this wine is. Um, it happened to be one of my wines and I got it wrong. <laughs> but I was like, I know what this is. Like, this is California Mervedra. Um, um, so I, I think there's similarity there um, where I see a little bit of a difference is also um, on the tannins where I feel like our tannins can be a little bit on the softer side, even though they can be very pronounced, where theirs can be. And part of that is when you look, especially for Bandol, it's a high concentration of clay and calcareous or clay uh, and limestone there. And um, here, though, we do have a decent amount of limestone, whether it's in Paso or Shalon and that kind of part of the central coast. There's Mourvedre planted on a lot of other different soils that I feel like just aren't quite as aggressive as limestone can be with the tannins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting you're comparing France and California and not mentioning Spain. Oh, exactly. So I am. <laughs> sorry, I, I skipped and the Spain part. And the and reason that's interesting is because, of course, it's grown in Valencia and Alicante, where the quality has traditionally not been that high, which is probably another thing which hurts Morvedra's reputation in general. And I drink an embarrassingly small amount of Monastrel for someone that focuses on Morvedra. Mm -hmm. um, I usually spend about two weeks in France every year, and a lot of that time is visiting other Morvedra producers. And it's been on my list to make one of those years a Spanish trip, and I still haven't done it yet. Um, this year was going to be the year, but then we just happened to have a baby. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So we, we had a baby um, you know, close to the time that I normally would travel, so probably next year I will do the, the Spanish pilgrimage. Because yeah. I know, one, I, I, have to, I have to see it. And then the other thing is I, I have to find, I know there's wines there that will um, blow my mind. Yeah. Because quality there is certainly getting higher. It needs to be very robust. It's a very warm area, and they're quite rustic and fruity, quite simple. But now producers are looking at higher elevation to produce yeah. higher quality wines. We actually had um, some Spanish winemakers come uh, about three or four weeks ago um, that are actually in Catalonia, and they do prim primarily uh, cava production. Mm. But they just bought like six hectares and these super steep terraces. Um, of Mataro and they came to meet and taste through and talk about fermentation and kind of what how we get to kind of our profile that we often get to and it was actually really interesting because I'm like wait you guys are from there yeah. <laughs> it's like this is like it's like going having people from Scotland go to Japan to talk about how do you guys make whiskey yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the kind of the great things that's emerged in the last few years is Californians and Australians, etc., have learned from Europeans, and then also as Europeans, like, oh, what do you, what do you do here? It's... And we are so lucky though because we have no rules, and I think that is a huge part. Where rules are excellent for certain things, it gives mm -hmm. you a framework, it gives you a sense of you know you've got a built-in kind of set of typicity or sense of place just by these very rules. But at the same point, sometimes those rules are shouldn't be there, or can be broken, <laughs> or things change. Um, so I think for us, we can look to those rules um, and then for us, just 
you know, keep what makes sense and throw the rest out the window. Yeah, so. that's why the Van der Frans appellation is so exciting. That's definitely an issue for another podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, one final question. Is Morvedra an easy or a difficult grape to work with, would you say? Oh, man. Um, I always say if I, can, if I can work with it, it's super easy. <laughs> like, I really, I think it's like... But I think it has a lot of... Um, what's the right term uh, for it it is um, it's very forgiving and again that goes back to the profile uh, that the grape is able to produce again from those super bright and just like you know super intriguing rosés to those big deep like just intense like just monster wines and because you know you're in that zone you've got that or that zone is of, of acceptability is so wide Maybe you don't always hit exactly what you want to hit every year. But for me, I realized that, okay, it might still be freaking delicious and still expressive of its place, still extremely terroir-driven. And I think really over the past, though we started making wines that were lighter and brighter, um, and I felt like I was probably forcing a style on Mervedra based on what I didn't know, and then what I really just like to drink. Um, over the years, as we've really got to know our sites really well, um, it's really trying to maximize the the distinctiveness of each one of those places. And that brings me back to that point where like, that's why I think it's like the most fascinating grape variety that I can work with in California, where we can line up six to seven Mervedras that we make in a year, some years up to nine different ones, and pour all of them. And if you really want to have a kind of a beautiful tour of like California terroir based on one grape variety, I just don't know anything that can do that sort of, that can provide that much differentiation and that, you know, <laughs> within about eight or nine wines all made by the same person. And so whether it's hard or difficult, I feel like it's the one that um, the one that fits our groove, mm-hmm. and that I think we've really been able to connect with. And man, we are so lucky to like again. We were lucky that 2010 happened the way it did, and that we kind of found our way into it because um, you don't want me making Pinot Noir. <laughs> it's not like man. Throw a goat in there. Probably gonna taste great. <laughs> Need some more barn, y'all. And there's enough people making Pinot Noir and yeah. Chardonnay and Cabernet. Why repeat what everyone else is doing? And that do it beautifully. And I always think it's. Um, I actually broke out. We had some visitors the other day. Um, we bottled Cabernet. Not Cabernet. Well, we have made one Cabernet made one Merlot, but we bottled Chardonnay for two years and loved it, loved it. And I always say it to me, it's not about, I have nothing against the varieties itself. It's just finding those spots where you can have a beautiful, unique expression that is also, you know, intriguing, um, but that is also something like, we just don't need another, you know, Russian, I, I don't need another Russian River Chardonnay that tastes like another Russian River Chardonnay. And there's people already knocked that out of the park, and I just, I just don't need to do that. I'm gonna buy someone else's. It's like we made sparkling wine for a number of years. I loved it, um, and I realized it's way better just to drink other people's sparkling. <laughs> like man, someone else can do that way better than I can, and I'll yeah. enjoy it more. <laughs> so that, that's where we are with the other varieties. 
Cool. Well, thank you for that. A really fascinating insight into Mulvedra and your experience with it and falling in love with it just by chance. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. And if you haven't tried um, Dirty and Rowdy's Mulvedra or the different Mulvedras, I definitely recommend it. A different style, slightly lighter, designed to be drunk a little bit younger, but they do age as well, don't they? Yeah. We've, I mean, we opened a bottle of the 10 the other night and I mean, and that truly was caveman wine. I mean, it was like everything was hands and feet. Bottling with no gas, no sparging, basically hand corking everything, everything that you could put to a wine that would be like, ah, this probably isn't gonna last. Wine's delicious right now. So as we've hit basically almost ten years, you know, or hitting our tenth vintage now, um, it's still wonderful. And a lot of the other ones show, you know, very little signs of slowing down. And that's another thing though with Mervedra, because even though our wines do not come off very reductive. Um, my Vredra does have a lot of reductive strength to it. It's like, well, you can also leave a bottle open for days and days and come back to it and be like, wow, this is actually still good. Mm-hmm. And there's barely any sulfur in here, and it's that made in a you know, lighter, fresher style. But Mervedra in itself is a fairly resilient grape. So, yeah, I think we'll see um, some really nice longevity out of the vineyard designates. The familiar wines and the especial wines or lighter wines are meant to be consumed younger, but even those have... Uh, done really well but i hope the vineyard designates have a very long life ahead of them mm-hmm. just requires some patience yes <laughs> so thank you for listening that was uh, hardy wallace of dirty and Ruby.